Warring factions in Sudan are creating a humanitarian and refugee crisis that's only getting worse. I have a special guest who will help break down what's happening and why you should care. And today marks the one year anniversary of journalist Shireen Abu Akhle's killing at the hands of the Israeli Defense Forces. Two special guests will discuss her tragic killing and the ongoing apartheid the state of Israel is perpetrating against Palestinians. And I'll also get into that report that the United Kingdom may be sending long range missiles to Ukraine and why that is important at the top of the hour on this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Thank you all for tuning in this week. I'm really excited to talk about this week's show. We have a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. So, Britain is preparing to send long-range missiles to Ukraine, a game-changing decision that will impact how Ukraine can liberate the territory Russia is currently occupying. According to the Washington Post, Britain may send weapon systems with strike capabilities with a range of up to 300 kilometers or nearly 200 miles equivalent for those Americans who don't understand kilometers. So this is roughly around the same range of the Army Tactical Missile System or ATACMS um, they can fire basically. So uh, the Biden administration has so far resisted sending Ukraine such missile systems uh, for fear that it may escalate Russian President Vladimir Putin's actions on the battlefield. And that includes the possible use of tactical nukes. Uh, there's a concern in the Pentagon that the U.S. doesn't have enough attack on platforms for its own strategic needs. So that's also a consideration. So this news comes from a posted procurement notice posted May 2nd by the British-led International Fund for Ukraine, a group of northern European countries that has set up a mechanism to send weapons to the battlefield. The United Kingdom's Defense Ministry asked for expressions of interest and providing strike capabilities with a range of up to 300 kilometers or nearly 200 miles. The notice asked for responses within three days. Now, the Brits love to take pride in being that European country that says, you know what, Germany, you know what, France and all you other weaklings. That's what they're not saying that, but that's what they're saying. You know what, if y'all not going to help Ukraine, we going to do it. They take big time pride and saying that so the thing about it is that this report dropped fairly recently but it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody because british prime minister Rishi sanak made this clear several months ago at the munich security summit that his country will be sending long-range striking platforms to ukraine to win the war ukraine needs more artillery armored vehicles and air defense so now is the moment to double down on our military support the United Kingdom will be the first country to provide Ukraine with longer range weapons. And it's why we're working with our allies to give Ukraine the most advanced air defense systems and build the air force they need to defend their nation. All right, so this is like the foreign policy hip hop where it's in, we stunned on y'all hoes. Like that, that's what he's saying. Like we gonna do this shit if y'all not gonna do it. So there is a whole lot in what he said without actually saying it. So if this goes through, and I think it will, what are the next steps? Why should you care? And what should you know? So first off, 
we aren't sure when these weapon systems will arrive in Ukraine. Just because a government signs off on when on, on approving weapon systems, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get there tomorrow because depending on the package, depending on the logistics in order to maintain those weapons and to make them effective, it takes a certain amount of weeks or a certain amount of months of training. And then after that, once all the procurement technical stuff is done, it could take a few weeks, it could take a few months. So it all depends on delivery timetables. And just want to clarify what exactly the Brits may be sending. They're equivalent to the Tacoms. What they may actually be are called the Storm Shadows, which are air launch, long-range, conventional, armed, uh, deep-strike weapons, and they're designed for pre-planned attacks against high-value or stationary targets. Now, let me break down what that means. So you have logistics depots that are, you know, kilometers, hundreds of kilometers behind enemy lines. So in order to give you a visual of what's happening, so everybody's heard of the High Mars, right? A few High Mars were the rave. And so they're deep strike uh, missile capabilities, but they may go up to about 50 miles. And so you've heard some news reports of High Mars hitting high value targets, um, you know, a certain, you know, groups of uh, soldiers that are in facilities in the Donetsk region, Luhansk, for example. Now, the Russians have been getting smart and saying, you know what, we we know that your weapon systems can only go so far. So we're going to put our reinforcement depots, et cetera, hundreds of miles back where y'all can't reach them. And, the, and so the Ukrainians have not been able to really push back the Russians because they've had enough space to regroup. And so the, the Ukrainians can't strike at their regrouping locations. With these, with these storm shadows, however, and with the attackums that the Ukrainians want, they can now do that. And that will put the Russians on the defensive and they would have to flee. They can also strike into Crimea. Also, this should not necessarily come as a surprise because the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has said that it's pretty confident that the West will send long-range missile systems. They didn't say when, though. And... They don't necessarily need the attackums if they have the storm shadows, and it's particularly if they have enough of the platform. And so the whole purpose of NATO, uh, the way that they operate right now, it's really designed uh, as a as a as an alliance that says, "Okay, look, France, we need this. Can y'all do it?" France may say yes, or France may say no. They're a little snooty and they say no a lot, and they have their little bullet point, five point plans, and all this other stuff, and they're really pains in the asses and Germans are stuck on their World War II history and say, I don't know. You know what? If if, if United States, if you send your Abrams first, then okay. I'll we we'll send our leopards. You know, it, it kind of works like that. And so the US, what's probably going on behind the scenes is is the US is saying, look, we don't want to send our attacks, but if you want to do it, Britain, y'all go ahead to do it. So that's pretty much how it works. And they don't explain that to you, but that's really how it goes down. And and that's how decisions like this are made. And so what does this mean for the potential counteroffensive, which we've been hearing about since the fall and winter of last year? So what this means is that the Ukrainians will be able to strike the Russians where they have not been able where, 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 they, where they've been relatively safe 
hundreds of miles behind enemy lines. And so it will change the calculus of how the Ukrainians will be able to fight. Now, again, these storm shadows, according to public information, they're not in the country yet, and they're just in the process of requesting them. And these are all formalities. And 9.99 times out of 10, they'll get them. This means that if they incorporate these storm shadows into their arsenal, that may delay the 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 spring offensive, which may likely be early summer offensive, um, you know, by a month or so. So that's what's going on. And another thing that people need to think about is that there's propaganda from all sides when it comes to this spring offensive. And you see reports in the Washington Post and other publications where the Ukrainians are saying, well, we, we want to really play down any expectations that we're going to make advanced gains against the Russians. Because as you all know, the Russians are strongly entrenched in the South and in Crimea, and they've built sophisticated trench systems in order to repel any counter offensives. So the reality of it is that we really don't know what the Ukrainians are going to do. And guess what, y'all? That is not a bad thing. As much as I want to know about what's going on, I actually want Ukraine to win. And Ukraine is not going to win if they put all their plans out in the newspaper for all of us, including the Russians, to know. So there's this fog of information, disinformation that the Ukrainians for all we know, may be putting out there purposefully. The Ukrainians have been really good when it comes to keeping journalists away from the front and just blacking out information. Now, there are some negative elements to that as well, which is another story. But that's pretty much what's happening. And so with the news of these storm shadows, these long-range striking capabilities coming to light, it could potentially change the calculus. And as we all know, the Ukrainians have been very crafty and they've been doing a lot with very little. We should not be surprised if they carry this out in the next counteroffensive, whether it be in the spring, in the in whatever period during the summer. And for all we know, this counteroffensive could take place in the fall. The reality is that we simply do not know. All right, guys, we're going to move on to our next segment about Sedan. Stay tuned. <laughs> Conflict in Sudan is getting worse by the day. So far, between 400 and 600 people have been killed in the infighting between the two generals who took power from the civilian provisional government in the fall of last year. 700,000 people have been displaced since the fighting started on April 15th. This is on top of the already 3.7 million people who have already been internally displaced before this recent round of violence began. Hundreds of thousands of refugees are expected to come out of the nation of around 45 million people. To help us understand what's happening is Mutasim Ali, a legal advisor at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, um, specializing in targeted human rights sanctions. He also specializes in um, human rights issues in Sudan in particular. He is currently a doctoral candidate at American University's Washington College of Law, where his research focuses on the interlinkage between peace and constitution-making processes. Brother, welcome to the show. How are you? 
Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing great and it's uh, great to be here on the show. Um, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation about Sudan. I think this is really a timely uh, conversation and I think uh, this is a great opportunity to do so. Well, well, listen, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on because, look, I, you know, I don't know much about um, about this issue. I read just like everybody else and I educate myself because this is my job, but I've wanted to do a segment on Sudan, on, on Sudan and but I don't have the knowledge and I didn't feel comfortable really breaking it down. So that's the reason why you're on the show to inform us about what's going on. And we'll get into that. But before we do. I always ask my guests about their mental health because we're dealing with all of these challenging issues and you're, you're a native of Sudan. And I just want to ask you, brother, how are you processing it? How is your family? How, 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 how are things with you? Because this is a really tragic situation. I just want to check in with you. Thank you very much for asking this question. I can tell you this. This question is extremely important. And I'm glad you ask about it. You know, uh, more often than not, people ask about the general situation and how people uh, sort of, you know, uh, how the situation is with that and how we got there and all of that. But I think it's really important to ask questions about our mental health. And I think for me as, uh, you know, as a person who's uh, left the country for, you know, for, for more than a decade now because of the uh, political um, persecution and uh, some of the atrocities I've seen myself, uh, this is particularly a very uh, difficult time because, um, you know, I've got my family who's still back in Sudan. They're in uh, an internally displaced persons camp. This is now for 20 years. Since 2003, they are in a camp uh, with, uh, you know, very little access to uh, services and humanitarian aid. And, and to hear all of a sudden this, you know, uh, the conflict between, um, you know, uh, military factions in Sudan, this even, you know, sort of exacerbating the already uh, terrible situation. And so it's really, it, it impacts on uh, people like me who are overseas and um, sort of feel, um, you know, uh, powerless to do anything about what is happening there. And so it is really a difficult time. But again, um, you know, what we're going through in Sudan is, is uh, you know, it's not only me that are going through these difficult times. There are many uh, Sudanese, right? Um, um, experiencing these difficulties, and I think um, we, we're we're privileged to be in a place where we can express our views uh, freely and and be a voice for those who are uh, left behind. And so that's really what keeps me up and strong uh, to express uh, the concerns and the fears of the people at home. Well, I'm happy that my platform is one of those spaces where you could be yourself, and I named this sh this podcast Black Diplomats. Because I want everybody to come on this show and feel like they have a voice and the voice of the Sudanese people is a priority for me. And I'm happy that you're here to lend some uh, to, 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 to lend that voice uh, to our audience. And so I want to get into what's happening. But before we do, I need to give a basic explainer about what's happening. And then th this information is being provided by boxes by box boxes reporting. And so um, here, here we go. So um, Khartoum is uh, the capital of Sudan and it's basically a war zone. And the situation it comes down to two men and their respective militaries who are responsible for this violence, um, not only in the capital, but elsewhere in Sudan. And so the fighting erupted on April 15th between the Sudanese armed forces 
and they are led by General Abdel Fattah al-Baran and the Rapid Support Forces, a powerful paramilitary group that's led by General Muhammad Hamdan Dagalo, and he's better known as Hamedi. Uh, the competing militaries are a partially a legacy of the former Sudanese dictator uh, Omar al-Bashir, who fractured the country's security apparatus as a quote-unquote cool-proofing strategy to prevent anyone from getting a strong enough position to take him out of power. And so that failed. And so after uh, mass protests, the military ousted al-Bashir in 2019. But the competing elements of power resisted. Al-Burhan and Hamedi uh, shared power with civilian leaders and Sudan's transitional government, which was supposed to create a pathway to a democratic Sudan. And a lot of people were very optimistic about that. But in 2021, those two generals teamed up to oust the civilian leaders. Now, here's the thing. Those two shared a very shaky partnership in the government, and they were recently trying to negotiate a deal to give the power back to civilian rule. But those negotiations, which were endorsed by the international community, failed to address some underlining issues. Um, basically, it came down to this really uh, thorny question about how to integrate the RSF into the Sudanese armed forces, and it threatened both generals' positions. And this, um, in large part, led to the fighting that began in April. So, Mutasi, my first question is, does this just about sum it up in general? And what's your read into why this um, this violence, this conflict has gotten so out of control? Thank you. you. You laid out really very solid basic information. And I think, you know, um, my reading to, the, uh, to this conflict between the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces um, it cannot be uh, understood in isolation from the broader Sudan's uh, problem. Um, as you may know, since the uh, Sudan's independence, we've been in this state of perpetual wars, right? Because we failed as uh, Sudanese to address the issue of our uh, national identity, the national framework that will bring every Sudanese together. And so, uh, for more than you know, the the the, the Sudan has been ruled by uh, military generals for more than fifty years, right? This is a really long period of time where it is predominantly um, ruled by the military generals. Now, uh, there have been um, numerous of uh, conflicts in, in different parts of Sudan, right? Uh, in South Sudan, now gained independence in twenty eleven because of the failure to accommodate them in the in the bigger Sudan, right? Uh, and then later on, we've, uh, you know, we, we witnessed the atrocities in the Darfur region. Darfur is a western part of Sudan where you see now we have more than 3 million people displaced and hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, uh, refugees in neighboring countries. And these two forces that are fighting today, the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, both of them were actually coordinating and they worked together to um, commit atrocities in the Darfur region, Western Sudan. 
they worked together and uh, Burhan, the commander of Sudan Armed Forces, the one orchestrated and actually um, established, helped establish this rapid support forces. The roots of the rapid support forces, you know, trace back to, uh, you know, to the militia of Janjaweed. I don't know if you heard of the term. Janjaweed is a militia. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Exactly. So Janjaweed is a militia that terrorized the people of Darfur, uh, burned villages, killed men, women, and children. Um, and, and, and that's part of the reason why we see these many victims, displaced persons, um, more than 300,000 people being killed. Um, and that was considered a genocide, right? It is a genocide, exactly. But explain that because I think that I want, you know, brief, well, I want you, you know, like briefly because I remembered that. Absolutely. So um, in 2003, then the president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, um, established this, uh, sort of or supported this paramilitary forces. Then at the time, Janjaweed, they did not become the rapid support forces. And the idea was to, uh, I mean, quote unquote, um, you know, to, to, uh, to counter insurgency, basically sort of um, armed resistance that rose up against uh, marginalization, economic marginalization, political marginalization in Sudan. And so those militias, the Janjaweed, now the rapid support forces, um, instead of fighting the armed resistance, they targeted the social incubators of the, um, um, the, the armed resistance in Darfur, right? Mostly descendant of African uh, tribes, right? Uh, and, so, and so the Janjaweed would attack villages target innocent civilians, right? They believe that these are the guys who are, uh, you know, these are the families of the armed resistance. And they got the green light from uh, the president of the country at the, uh, at the time, Omar Bashir. And so that's part of the reason why we see, um, you know, specific ethnic groups, right? African ethnic groups targeted by the militia who are mostly from Arab ethnic groups, right? Targeting innocent civilians, right, killing them. And the intent was to eradicate and actually even more than that, to displace and replace, basically displacing the indigenous uh, indigenous African groups, right, the owners of the lands, and replace them by the Arabs, who some of them are coming from neighboring countries such as Central African Republic, Mali, uh, and also Niger, Chad, and all of that. And so that's how the genocide was committed. Then there are not less cruel crimes committed in Darfur, war crimes and crimes against humanity, right? There are, there are really very minor distinctions among these uh, different types of international crimes, right? In the genocide, there need to be um, uh, a genocidal intent, like intent to... Uh, you know, to you know, to kill on unhol- um, uh, or in part a specific ethnic group. Whereas in crimes against humanity, uh, there need to be a, you know sort of systematic and widespread acts of you know um, uh, serious um, you know uh, crimes against civilian population, and that's really what happened in the region Darfur. Um, and 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 so just to lead us to 
the ongoing uh, conflict in Sudan, right? This is now, and uh, so uh, my my analysis to the failure of addressing the conflict in Darfur, the genocide in Darfur, is what got us here today, right? Most of the perpetrators who've involved in atrocities in Darfur, they have never been held to account. Not even a single person. We're we're speaking of, you know, more than 300,000 people were killed. We're speaking of, um, you know, thousands of uh, villages being uh, burned down. We're speaking of uh, nearly 3 million displaced persons. Not even a single person is held to account. What this did uh, is that um, perpetrators, you know, uh, felt the, the um, you know, they're not being held to account and they, they're actually being rewarded, right? Like the commander of the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, is the deputy uh, head of the state at the moment, right? Even though there was like a, now they are in conflict uh, with the Sudan Armed Forces, but in practice, he is the deputy of the head of the, of the state instead of being held to account, right? And so you can only see that the prevalence of impunity and the absence of accountability would lead us to even a broader conflict. Now it's even beyond Darfur, all over the country of Sudan. And perhaps my fear is that this is even going to, you know, evaporate to, um, you know, um, beyond Sudan's borders, right? It could get to Chad, the Central African Republic, go to Ethiopia, Eritrea, and so on and so forth. And this is the, the failure of, you know, adequately treating, um, you know, um, situations like, um, you know, mass atrocities in Darfur. Got you. I, this is a really great analysis. I, I want to play a clip from the news network DW in which uh, Cameron Hudson, a Washington, D.C.-based analyst and a consultant on peace and security, was asked what role does the international community play in this conflict and if their role was played in a manner that's actually exacerbating what's happening right now. Here's what he had to say. Now, how much of a role do you think the West has had in fueling the conflict in Sudan? Well, I don't think that I would say that the, the, the West uh, has been fueling the conflict. I think if we look back uh, at the negotiations, the mediation that's been taking place there for the last six months, I think we can. it's fair to say that there have been some errors of omission and errors of commission. Uh, but of course, all of it, I think, uh, intentioned around the idea of bringing civilians back into uh, the, 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 the rule of the country. I think the question is, you know, did we uh, put too much faith in what we were hearing from the military leaders that they were willing to submit uh, to civilian rule? Uh, did we do enough to isolate those spoilers who were against uh, seeing the transformation of the country and the restoration of civilian rule. So I think there are things that we certainly got wrong, uh, analysis we got wrong, but I don't think that uh, the Western or international effort uh, to find a way forward was was uh, the cause of the fighting that's broken out. Mutasim, what are your thoughts to, to this? I, I, I agree with him uh, because um, I think uh, to start off with, um, I genuinely believe that the international community first failed the, uh, the people of Darfur by uh, one, um, you know, failing to hold the perpetrators of the atrocities to account, 
right? And two, um, by um, sort of, um, you know, in Darfur, there used to be the United Nations African mission in Darfur, sort of in, you know, international forces, joint forces between the United Nations and the and the African Union, right? And the idea of, you know, the, the forces were, were mandated to monitor the human rights situation, the violations, and also to protect the humanitarian workers. And so what happened is that the international community withdrew the forces without putting, um, you know, forces, uh, another forces in place, alternative forces in place to provide uh, sort of, you know, um, to observe and to 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 monitor the the abuses against civilians in Darfur, right? Uh, and now, in terms of how the international community, uh, the U.S. and uh, and um, the allies, you know, so, sort of treating the situation. Of course, they they did a lot to help uh, Sudan move into democratic transition, but definitely they got, uh, the, you know, they 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 they. Uh, they filled the people of Sudan by legitimizing these two forces, the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces. These are people that have no interest whatsoever in democracy. You, uh, you know, you cannot trust a militia uh, man to, 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 to help transform people into um, uh, democracy. The Sudan Armed Forces, it's the forces that engaged in atrocities, not only in Darfur, but also in other parts of Sudan, right? In uh, two other areas in, in South Kordofan, Bulunide, and even South uh, Sudan. Sudan armed forces cannot be a party to transform, um, uh, party to democracy, not at all. The, the, you know, the, the, the history demonstrates that they are not interested in transforming into democracy, right? It became, the Sudan armed forces became a political institution, not really a professional um, national army that, um, you know, cares about the Sudan and its sovereignty. So, so I think that's, you know, the, the failure of international community is more of, um, you know, on, on trusting the, the generals, right. Uh, you know, trusting the words that, uh, they are working and they're, you know, they, 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 they're helping and guarding the, the, the Sudan revolution. They are not guarding the Sudan revolution. They are undermining the revolution, right? Just recently, actually, I'm speaking of uh, following the, uh, the, the, the removal of Bashir from power in 2019. In June 3rd, these um, two generals, right, leading the Sudan armed forces and the rapid support forces committed a massacre in Khartoum, right? These two generals. And so, you know, it is ironic and I actually find it very disappointing, to be honest, for the international community to uh, trust these generals, um, you know, in, you know, uh, that they're, they're, they're in fact, um, you know, um, uh, interested in, 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 in democratic transition in Sudan. Uh, I think, I think um, that, and, and I actually, this, this conflict is a manifestation of, you know, you know, their lack of interest in democracy, right? These guys, uh, the generals, uh, they have their own economic empires. They compete for power, right? This is a race for power. This conflict is more all about race for power between the two generals. It is not about um, a democratic transition in Sudan. Therefore, I think they would do whatever it takes to... Uh, to, to uh, for each of them, they think the any uh, each of them would think of winning the battle, and therefore they 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 would put all the efforts necessary to continue this war until one of them will win, and I think that's not in the interest of democratic transition in Sudan.
Yeah, so I want to also just call out the elephant in the room. I think that there's a stereotyping when these type of conflicts happen because you talk about two generals, right? And the common coverage of just the continent of Africa in general is you have all these people who are generals and they're military people and they're constantly fighting each other. And I have to remind people, look, across Europe, when you think about Mussolini, you think about Spain, you think about all these other empires in Europe, particularly prior to World War II, were run by generals. Okay? Like, America! You know, World War II, generals! Eisenhower! Generals! So, I just want to call that out, that the history that we, you know, of, of generals assuming the leadership of their country is not something that's specific to the continent of Africa or so-called developing or third world nations, right? And World War II, from a historical standpoint, is not that long ago. So let's, I just I just had to put that out there, right? You know, um, you know, and Mutasim, I know you, you understand where I'm coming Absolutely. from, right? Absolutely. No, thank, thank you for flagging that. And I think, yeah, no, I think this is really a good point to make. Um, and I think for us, um, you know, at least in Sudan, this has been a very, it's been a detrimental, really, because, um, you know, you know, we, we, you know, in Sudan in particular now, uh, you know, it's nearly 70 years now in this perpetual quest for democracy. And I think, you know, um, you know, the Sudanese people felt, and I think in part, um, because, you know, um, most of the uh, solutions that we, we, we've sought in the past uh, were partial, didn't, were not inclusive to all Sudanese people, right? Um, because if you really want to address the root causes of the country, uh, right, especially speaking of a country, uh, you know, post-colonial, um, uh, you know, post-independence, um, you know, um, states uh, in Africa, you really need to uh, bring as many people to participate in the process of establishing that country, right? Like people need to see themselves in in in, in the country, right? Like uh, as one of the Southern African judges said, you know, you know, in 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 putting uh, you know sort of uh, bases of a new state, um, a constitution or document that will sort of form that uh, social contract has to be an autobiography. Uh, of that nation, right? Like everybody has to see him or herself in that uh, country. And that's what we lacked in Sudan and of course, many other African countries. Yeah, so you perfectly said something that's gonna segue into this clip uh, that was featured on uh, This Is News. And it features a New York University student Suad Hassan, who immigrated to the U.S. 15 years ago with her parents and siblings. And she talks about why the international community should care about what's happening in her home country. The Sudanese people right now need support more than anything. It's really difficult to ask, especially non-Sudanese people, to put in a lot of effort in stopping the conflict. Because I do understand that they may not relate to it at an emotional level, but as a human, they should be able to empathize with the Sudanese citizens who are currently living in Sudan. Being able to speak out 
and repost information about what's happening in Sudan, even like sharing it with your friends or your family, or being able to just, you know, bring light to the conflict that's happening there is more than enough. When we educate people on what's happening, we can also get a global movement, global awareness to what's happening in Sudan, and that can spark governments and humanitarian organizations to focus on giving the assistance that's needed for the people there. You know, I listened to her talk and to a certain extent, like what she says is a bit heartbreaking for me. And I'm, I'm going to explain to you why, Mutasim. I live in Ukraine part-time and when the war broke out there, I was on the ground and I helped from what I can remember, at least three families flee that conflict. And I was all over the major networks, CNN, ABC, MSNBC. And I don't think most people, you understand this, I understand this, but most people don't understand what it's like to live in a actual war zone where missiles are coming down and where you can get hit and shrapnel could just tear up your body. I've seen it all. I've seen people die. I've seen all kinds of things. I, I, it, it's it's a horrible, inhumane um, place to be in, and it's a failure of humanity. It's just if if a war happens, human, there's something in the human element that just completely failed. That's 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 what it is. But when I was on television and I was helping these families flee, you know, they're Ukrainians, but they're you know white faces. I felt like there was an emotional empathy that people felt for the Ukrainians. And here's the thing, they're humans and they should. And you, and, 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 with, see, with, without a doubt. And I was in the thick of it as, you know, and it was my first war and I'm always conscious of this stuff. But when you're in that situation, when you're going through multiple checkpoints and the checkpoints are another thing, right? That's a whole nother story that we can do just on checkpoints and how harrowing that can be because they are set up by professional army. They're set up by volunteers that don't know what the hell they're doing, who don't have trigger discipline, all kinds of stuff. Okay. Um, but when I listened to this student talk, it hurt my heart because the same feelings that the Ukrainians, uh, that, the, that the support that the Ukrainians garnered, the Sudanese should have the same thing. Oh, oh man, thank this. This is this is an excellent point to bring, and you know there are many layers to this. Unfortunately, uh, you know, as uh, as a Sudanese, I, I you know you know you know it, it it breaks my heart, right? Like I you know we we sympathize with 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 Ukrainians, with Afghans, right? And all of that. Um, and and just to demonstrate this a little more, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, in February 2022, uh, the US, EU, um, Canada, UK imposed thousands, thousands of sanctions against you know, uh, those who enabled the uh, Putin regime to invade Ukraine, hundreds of, of or billions of dollars were paid to support the Ukrainians. There's another case in Sudan now, 
imagine only one person has been sanctioned by the US since 2021. Only one person with respect to Sudan, right? Um, the US, the, uh, the, the, the Biden administration a few days ago issued an executive order uh, sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of threatening to impose sanctions against those who undermine Sudan's uh, democratic transition. But it really failed to mention even, uh, to designate even one single person in the executive order. And you can only see uh, what makes, what this makes, you know, uh, people in Sudan feel, right? Like there are people who may be worth more and others worth less. And this is really disturbing in a world that we, we, we think should be a global, you know, society that we all care for each other and we all we should be equal. We should all fight for the same, for a better world. Yes, sir. My final question to you, brother, is you are the senior lead at the National Security Council at the White House. You are the point man that Joe Biden goes to for Sudan. What is your advice to him? First and foremost, impose immediate targeted sanctions against the generals and their enablers. If that's not possible, because on one hand, you would like to, you know, sort of promote sort of uh, or uh, advance negotiations between the generals to reach a ceasefire, then at least their enablers, right? The prestatals, the companies that fund the, the, uh, the warring parties need to be sanctioned immediately because these two generals have the means and the resources to continue this war. And they, they have no problem continuing this war. So, and, and at the same time, civilians, right, in Khartoum, in Darfur, they, they, they actually struggle to find food and water, right? And therefore, I think it is extremely important to impose targeted sanctions against uh, the enablers of this war. And the idea here is to cut them off from the sources that stream uh, the illicit fund, uh, the uh, sources that illicit funds to to uh, to, to to these two uh, warring parties. So I think that would be the priority. And second, uh, for the U.S. to immediately, uh, you know, support the uh, pro-democracy forces, including local initiatives that uh, you know they do great work to support um, people with even humanitarian need, right? Like to support those who. Uh, seek to provide life-sustaining uh, um, assistance. And so this is what is needed right now to help the people of Sudan. Then later on, we're going to speak about restoration of democratic transition uh, and so on and so forth. Brother Mutasim, it was a privilege and an honor to have you on the show. This will not be the last time that I extend an invitation to you. I am much smarter, and so are my listeners for your brilliant analyses. On a personal note, I uh, wanna let you know that I'm thinking about you and your families and I'm with you and this is your space. Thank you so much Roy, for having me and I really appreciated the opportunity um, to appear on your show. And I think this is gonna make a gigantic difference in bringing a voice of the Sudanese people, at least some of the Sudanese people who um, you know, are still uh, trapped in the country and there are 
uh, they want to be uh, heard. And I'm glad I got this chance to bring their voices. Today marks the one-year anniversary of Shireen Abu Akleh, a reporter with Al Jazeera who was killed by Israeli Defense Forces while she was reporting on an IDF raid in Jenin Camp, a Palestinian refugee camp located in the city of Jenin in Northern West Bank. Many human rights and media organizations have either accused the IDF of deliberately targeting the reporter or have produced reports showing that the accusation is highly likely to be the case. Colleagues of the renowned journalists are circulating um, remarkable commentary and 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 odes to the journalists, um, which are basically saying that she was as objective and fair as they come. She had no problem calling out the abuses of the Israeli state and did not hold her tongue when it came to critiquing the various groups on the Palestinian side. The anniversary of her death comes as violence between Israel and Palestine uh, has not died down um, as both sides are attacking each other with artillery strikes. And so here is the latest news on that from ABC. Deadly airstrikes in the Middle East. James Longman is tracking the latest. Good morning, James. Yeah, good morning, George. At least 13 Palestinians have been killed and 20 others injured in Israeli airstrikes over the Gaza Strip. Among those killed, three senior members of the Islamic Jihad group. Images this morning show the front of an apartment building completely ripped away. Palestinian officials say six women and four children also died in this attack. Israel says it launched the strikes because it feared an immediate threat and that 10 weapon manufacturing sites and military compounds were also targeted. Islamic Jihad has vowed revenge, likely rocket attacks into Israel. And if Hamas, who controls the Strip, joins them, the risk of escalation is high. And this follows a barrage of rockets last week after the death of a Palestinian who was on hunger strike. One of my colleagues and a good friend of mine with whom I traveled to Palestine with uh, more than a month ago, Matt Doss, tweeted recently, uh, and I quote, this is so awful as you hear the robotic recitations of quote unquote, Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, remember that this did not have to happen. The escalation was a choice by Netanyahu to appease his right wing partners and everyone in the Biden administration knows this. And this is these are words that he tweeted uh, this morning. And so here to help break all of this down are Sharif Abdel Kadus, an independent print and television journalist based in New York City and Cairo. He has reported extensively from Palestine and was the lead host of Al Jazeera's documentary on Shireen Abdul Akhle's uh, killing. And also with us is Diana Batu, a Canadian-Palestinian human rights lawyer based in Palestine. First of all, I am honored and feel privileged that the both of you have taken time to appear on my podcast. And so I just want to start off before we really get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in your own uh, work. From a mental health standpoint, I want to ask the both of you, and I'll start with Deanna. How, how are you doing? You're in Palestine right now and you're in the thick of everything. I just want to check in on you. Thank you. Thank you, Terrell, for, for having me. And, and really, thank you for asking um, the question because we never get asked this about how it is that we're feeling. 
you know, I, I don't know how to really summarize my feelings other than to say that it's been it's been a, it's been a terrible year, um, and it's been a an, a really difficult couple of weeks. And I say this because we're seeing not only a heavy um, heavy attacks, Israeli attacks on Palestinians, but also highest number of Palestinians killed in such a long period of time. And all of it because Israel can do it. And so we live with a sense that tomorrow is going to be worse than today. And it's, it is, that's the way it is. We, it is the fact that tomorrow is worse than today and the day after tomorrow is worse than, than, than tomorrow and so on. And, and so we, we wake up to bad news, we go to bed to bad news, and in between you're just left trying to cope with um, trying to have a semblance of a life, knowing that this is a government that, that without, without exaggeration, wants to get rid of you. And, and, uh, and so it's been, it's been difficult. This has been a, a difficult couple of weeks with everything from the 20 Palestinians killed in the past uh, little over 24 hours. Khadr Adnan, a man who had gone on hunger strike a number of times, this, this had been a sixth hunger strike, who stayed on hunger strike for 87 days. And all that he was waiting was for, um, for a bail hearing. They wouldn't even grant him that. That they still, the Israelis still have not released his body to his family, even though, remember, he's never been convicted of anything. And that this becomes so normalized inside Israel. It's just so normalized. And it's my, my fear is that it, that it becomes just part of this background noise that we live with every day. Sharif, I'm going to ask you the same question, brother. How, how are you feeling? Well, I, uh, you know, it's, it's different for me. I, d I don't live in Palestine. The last time I was there was in um, October to uh, work on the story about the killing of Shirin Abu Akhle. Uh, but uh, as Diana mentioned, you know, this, this upswing in violence is uh, very difficult to witness from afar. You know, um, it's really just an intensification and continued consolidation of Israel's settler colonial project, which requires... Uh, systemic and sustained levels of violence really in order to be maintained. So, you know, raids and arrests and uh, land expropriation, settlement building, enclosures, checkpoints, um, the, the, the strangulation and bombardment of Gaza that we're seeing right now. Uh, this is, you know, this is not new. This is, uh, it comes up and down in waves. And we're seeing a particularly vicious one over this past year and just over these last 48 hours, uh, you know, at least at the time of this uh, interview, 21 Palestinians um, have been killed uh, in Gaza alone, including six children. Um, uh, and, you know, two Palestinians were killed uh, also today um, or yesterday in a raid uh, by Israeli soldiers um, on a in a town in the northern uh, occupied West Bank. And this is exactly the type of uh, action that has been escalating these almost near daily raids into uh, cities and towns across the occupied West Bank that Shirin Abu Akhle was covering when she herself was killed uh, exactly a year ago. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's part and parcel of this uh, this ongoing uh, settler colonial project uh, that uh, is kind of on steroids right We're now. We're definitely going to get into the settler colonial project because... I was in Palestine a little more than a month ago to witness it. And I have to tell you that, you know, it, it was a particularly dehumanizing experience. And as a black man, 
who lives in America and is very much keen on the injustices and indignity of my community, for me to be able to, as an American citizen, walk on the streets where Palestinians, because of who they are, are not allowed to walk, was sickening to me. And I'm not overstating it when I say that I wanted to vomit. It was it, it was the most, um, and, and even just right now, I, I just feel overcome with sadness and a certain degree of shame that I, as a, a citizen, given my own history, I was able to walk these streets. I was able to go through uh, through checkpoints that Palestinians, because of who they are, had to stop. I, you know, and so I definitely saw this settler colonial project, uh, Sharif, that you're talking about. But because you are the lead host of Al Jazeera's documentary titled The Killing of Shireen Abu Akhle, I want to talk to you about this one year of anniversary and, and pretty much what we all should be thinking about because everyone has been heralding her work as being the gold standard of what it means to report from Palestine. And tell us about your pro about the project you were participating in and what we should be thinking about as we as we uh, commemorate um, her, her, her tragic killing. Well, really, this was an investigative documentary trying to provide a forensic accounting um, of her death um, on May 11th last year, uh, how she was killed by Israeli forces, relying on video footage from that day and her colleagues who were eyewitnesses to the incident, and also searching for accountability. Uh, Shirina Abu was um, a Palestinian, but also a U.S. citizen. And so the U.S. government has a duty uh, to pursue justice in her case. Um, but as we show in the documentary, and as is clear, I think, to many people, uh, the U.S. administration, the Biden administration, has largely adopted uh, the Israeli narrative, which, um, which basically says that they likely killed her, but that uh, there was no intentionality, a claim that they don't uh, explain how they determined uh, that conclusion. And that contradicts a lot of the evidence, both video footage and eyewitness testimony. But just to give uh, people listening a sense of who Shireen was, um, you know, Shadeen joined Al Jazeera in 1997, not long after the channel was founded. And she was hired as one of their first uh, field correspondents. And in a career that spanned nearly a quarter of a century, she, she became one of the most prominent journalists of her generation. She was a familiar face and a trusted reporter for millions uh, across uh, the Arab world and internationally. And she was very dedicated to her job and to the critical role uh, that journalism plays, especially in a place like occupied Palestine. And we saw um, Palestinians come together after her death uh, in um, a display of unity that uh, I think uh, rocked the Israeli occupation because um, Shadin managed to unite uh, Palestinians across class, across gender, across political affiliation. And we saw this massive turnout in Jerusalem on the day of her funeral uh, to show how much she meant uh, to Palestinians. And we also saw the Israeli uh, police attacked the funeral viciously, beating mourners with batons, almost making the casket drop. And so uh, you saw that this dual kind of expression of uh, Palestinians uh, coming out in solidarity for Shireen and then uh, Israeli forces uh, trying to quell those voices. Diana, your, your thoughts. Oh, where do I begin? Um, I, I first got the news of Shireen's assassination at 7.16 in the morning. 
on May the 11th. And the first news that I received was that an, it all it said was Al Jazeera reporter killed in Jenin. And um, immediately, I, I was we were friends. Immediately, the circle of friends started to call one another to find out who it was. And when we found out that it was Shireen, it was both a sense of, of um, kind of disbelief, but also it, it just also shock, also shock. And as anybody knows who's ever experienced um, the loss of a loved one, you, you go through different phases and, the, and your first um, reaction is to then think of what are the next steps? What, what needs to be done? And in Shireen's case, it, it wasn't just a question of what are the next steps, but having to witness her be murdered twice because immediately the Israeli Hasbro, the Israeli media campaign came out and spun their assassination of her. And, and let me be clear, Charles, in saying that she was wearing um, she was wearing a, a press jacket. She was wearing um, she was wearing a helmet, and they sh the sniper shot her right at the base of where the the helmet ends. There was nothing unintentional about it. Um, she had made herself known to the army she, so that they saw they saw her, and I knew Shitty. She was the person who taught me what to do at at demonstrations. I knew how careful she was. And immediately this, this press machine kicked into action to blame Shireen for her own death, to then blame other Palestinians for her death. And it all just became part of this, this regular and routine method that the Israelis have, have fine-tuned to somehow distract and blame everybody else rather than accept responsibility. So we were dealing with our own shock our own grief, and then having to witness her be murdered a second time. And then when she, as, as Sharif mentioned, um, she not only had a, a funeral in Jerusalem, in which was attacked, but she probably had the longest funeral procession. It started in Jenin, which is a little bit over 100 kilometers north of, of Jerusalem, all the way down to Nablus, and then from Nablus um, to Ramallah, and then from Ramallah to Jerusalem, all with thousands of people, um, if not millions, attending her 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 funeral. And the, the 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 shocking part about all of this is that the Israelis not only they not only um, effectively murdered her twice, if, if that can be such a thing, but they tried to even control our own mourning and our own grief. And that's something that a year later, we're still grappling with, that we are, we're still in a place and space, as Shadiaf mentioned, where her family and her friends are still demanding accountability. And the, the, the statements that have been received are, are just so, you know, so mundane, so run of the mill, like, oh, we mourn Shadiaf's loss, but effectively saying we're going to do nothing about it. So a year later, I, I'm still um, her. When I hear her her voice, I still weep. I still find myself going back to her messages, 
and can't believe that she's gone. And and then I'm also very angry that 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 while there was so much um, attention given to Shadian's murder, that nobody has bothered to even do the bare minimum to hold that sniper, and he was a sniper, and they know exactly where who he is. They know exactly where he was positioned to hold that person accountable. And so we're left with an incredible sense of loss. One just one last word about Shidian and her and, and who she was. Um, as Shadiev mentioned, she she had been a she had been working for Jazeera for a quarter of a century. And what made Shidian one of the most incredible journalists out there was she didn't do the mundane of just reporting numbers and what the government said and what this person said. She got in deep and, and went to houses. She met with she met with the families of martyrs. She met with with the chil- with children. She met with um, political prisoners and their families. She met with families whose houses were just destroyed by the Israelis. She met with families who were about to be thrown out of their houses. She met with everybody. And what she did was she used this, this great uh, position that she had and she turned the microphone and gave them the microphone and allowed Palestinians to speak. And, and so it's, it's that form of, um, it's that part of her reporting that I miss so much, but I also miss her as Shidian. I also miss her as Shidian. I'd also like to add just very briefly, you know, I, I echo everything Diana said, and, and also Shidin also, she just didn't report on the, on the pain of Palestine, but also the joys. She loved uh, doing stories about just human interest stories, about pets, about sports, um, showing, you know, just Palestinian life. Um, and, and this was something that, you know, was so important, I think, because often the, the only thing we see coming out of Palestine is the pain, is, um, is death, um, and, and you don't see these other kinds of reports. And I think also her killing is so pivotal and important to have justice in because this is one of the most prominent journalists of her generation, killed in broad daylight while wearing uh, a flak jacket and helmet with the word press emblazoned on it with no crossfire in the area, with it, most of it caught on camera and her colleagues there to witness it all. And she's a U.S. citizen, not that it should matter, but she's a U.S. citizen, the main backer and funder of Israel. So if we can't find justice for Shireen, what chance does anyone in Palestine have? I want to get into that. What justice, what, 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 what can the Palestinians seek if it doesn't happen for people like her? You know, I'm not unfamiliar to conflict zones. As you both know, I covered the war in Ukraine. I'm actually going to be traveling to Ukraine in the next couple of weeks. I'll be based there for a year and a half and uh, be going to the front. And I covered the invasion during the first uh, few months when it began. And I had the flak jacket. I had press on my, you know, my vest and I had the helmet. So I know that. And I've been in situations where you know, it, it gets very precarious when, when, when you're, you know, when you're in the actual crossfire and snipers do know who they're targeting and they're trained to do so. And that shot very much is intentional. And as far as I'm concerned and based on the reporting of Al Jazeera and other networks, I am thoroughly convinced that she was killed on purpose. That is my opinion based on what I have seen 
and I my mind cannot be changed based based on that reporting. I think it's pretty clear. You know what troubles me is the lack of um, consistency that the U.S. government exercises when we are determining who is America's friends versus their enemies. You take, for example, with Russia, which is clearly waging a genocide against the Ukrainian people. Uh, the, the evidence speaks speaks definitely to that, and I, I cover that in, in, as an area of my expertise. That's what's happening, and I think that the uh, Putin definitely is a war criminal. I also think that past presidents who have invaded Iraq, you know, I think I think that America has its own set of war criminals, without a doubt. I also, but but what I also am troubled with, Sharif, is that what's going on in uh, against the Palestinians is straight up apartheid. And why is it, Sharif, that the American government? is not really going after the Netanyahu um, administration for its crimes against Palestinians, but also just the state of Israel in general, because it predates him. You know, why is there this inequity in the ways in which the United States targets Israel? You know, it doesn't target Israel, but it targets other countries for the war crimes that the Israelis are committing against Palestinians. The United States has long been the main backer and funder of Israel, and Israel couldn't exist as a colonial settler state, as an apartheid state, without this backing. Perhaps this is one colonial settler state backing another. What it perceives as its geopolitical interests in the region uh, are served by Israel, although I would argue, and many people would argue, that they don't serve them at all whatsoever, and they're actually very, very damaging to America's geopolitical interests in the region. Um, and this is what is shocking, is that there is this blanket impunity given to Israel more than any other country that is embarrassing even to, to successive U.S. administrations, Republican and Democratic alike, that, uh, you know, they will announce new settlement expansion right before a visit to Israel or right before a comment about the so-called peace process. So, you know, I, I, I can't say to, to why, but... Uh, because it is almost absurd, uh, the way that this backing continues. We see it in, in Shirin's case, we see it in uh, almost every case, and, and there's a complete disparity in the way Palestinians are dealt with and the way um, Israelis are dealt with. And finally, as you mentioned, you're mentioning Russia and so forth. You know, last week was um, World Press Freedom Day, and there was the White House Correspondents Association dinner, and President Biden rightly uh, spoke of the cases of American journalists who are targeted Evan Gershkovich, Austin Tice, who disappeared from a Syrian military checkpoint 12 years ago. He said nothing about Shirin Abu Akhlin. Why? She's also a US citizen, if we're going by that rubric. He's refused to meet with uh, Shirin's family, both when uh, he went to travel to the region and on their visits to DC. He met with Evan Gershkovich's family. This is insulting, really troubling, and also very telling. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to play an Al Jazeera clip uh, from roughly a year ago in which a Amnesty International um, produced a report that calls what Israel is doing against Palestinians as apartheid. And we're going to play that now. 
Amnesty International says Israel has built up an array of policies, laws, military coercion and economic and social discrimination that amounts to oppression and domination over Palestinians in the areas it controls. In short, it says, a system of apartheid. We are here today to call on the international community to take resolute action against the crime of humanity being perpetrated in order to maintain the system of apartheid. The report highlights last year's tensions over threatened displacements of Palestinians from their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem and the military and communal violence that followed. It sets out a catalogue of instances and techniques whereby Palestinians have been displaced from land in Israel and in the occupied territories. A settler has confiscated thousands of hectares while Palestinian shepherds can't graze their sheep. We want protection for our herders from the settlers. But it goes much further back in Israel's history. Analyzing basic laws and long-term policies, it says, designed to guarantee a Jewish majority and Jewish control. So, Deanna, a lot of people, when they hear the word apartheid, we think about South Africa, and we're not used to hearing it in the Palestinian context. So can you please help break it down for why uh, an organization like Amnesty International would call it apartheid and 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 yeah, let's just start there. Sure. Um, look, Charlie, I think there's it's more than a, than amnesty. Let me step back. The the first organizations to label it apartheid were Palestinian ones, and they did that about 20 years ago in the year uh, 2001, 2002, uh, during the Durban conference, anti-racism conference in Durban, South Africa. Um, in South Africa itself, South African organizations came out and said the same. The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, also declared an apartheid, and and many said that this was, and I think it was him. He said this is even worse than the apartheid that we witnessed in South Africa. And and then more recently, you know, fast forward, and we had B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights organization, that labeled it apartheid. Human Rights Watch has said that it's apartheid, and now Amnesty International. And so there's this like wall of consensus across human rights organizations that call it apartheid. Why? Because it is. And what is apartheid? It means that it's a system that's designed to privilege one group over another. And in the case of Israel, the whole system is designed to privilege Jewish Israelis, in fact, anybody who's Jewish really, over Palestinians. That means everything from who's allowed to to get citizenship in the country. It's only people who are Jewish who are allowed to acquire citizenship in the country um, without being born there. Only only if you're Jewish, you can immigrate from anywhere around the world and instantly acquire citizenship. Whereas my family, my, my late aunt, who was a Palestinian refugee, born in Palestine, raised in Palestine, married in Palestine, she had she gave birth to her eldest son in Palestine. She was never able to return because she wasn't Jewish. So it's a whole system that's designed to privilege one group over another. But you know, I'll be I'll be even like sort of more blunt. I don't think we need more labels to describe what Israel's doing. We know that what it's doing is bad. I don't need I, I'm a lawyer, I don't need to add another legal label to to convince people that bombing refugee camps is illegal, to convince people that destroying Palestinian schools is bad, to convince people that, that uprooting families from their houses is wrong, 
or that, um, that uh, you know, destroying houses or, or kicking people out or, or putting checkpoints in or having Israeli only roads or having roads that Palestinians can't go on, as you saw in Hebron. We don't need legal jargon for that. We don't need additional jargon. We know that it's wrong and the world knows it, that it's wrong. The big problem is, is that everybody's looking for a way to try to capture the attention of people so that they do something about it. And that's what this whole, the whole push of these, of these, this apartheid, labeling it apartheid has been, is to try to get people to act. So it's not that we don't know. They know. Israel knows. In fact, Israel has itself said that, uh, that it's apartheid. The Israeli leaders themselves have said it. But it's just a question of what action is being done. And and it's been um, seven and a half decades, 75 years of, of the international community really just remaining silent. And not only the international community, I don't have faith in states. I, I, I never have, and I don't think I ever will. Um, but people, people, people. And, and the, the whole push now is that we as people can hold Israel to account. We can do it through supporting the boycott movement, supporting the divestment movement, supporting sanctions on Israel. The same tools that were applied against apartheid South Africa can be apart, uh, applied against Israel, and they should be, because otherwise we were creating a legacy in which, um, in which supremacy is allowed to, to reign and in which people's lives are viewed as completely disposable, which is what, ha what it has been now for 75 years with Israel. Sharif, I need your help with with a couple of things. I went, I was there for six. I was in Palestine Israel for seven days. I went to Hebron. I was in Jerusalem. I went to um, a few places, including um, we didn't go into any settlements, uh, any Jewish settlements. But um, um, when I was traveling <clears throat> through Palestine, you know, I was later tweeting about it. And I got a lot of, you know, to put it nicely, feedback. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was my first time in the Middle East in general. And I got so much, as, as much respect that I got from people who thank me for, for a talk, using my platform to talk about what I'm, what, what I saw. I got it equal amount of resistance from people who are calling me anti-semitic um i got a, a lot of people who were telling me that my eyes were lying to me you know um you know the 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 live human beings that were in front of me and telling me about their experience in fact we know that guy david stern that settler who was shot we were at a falafel place just an hour or so before he was shot. Um, and I just saw how the whole town just just completely shut down. And the ways that the uh, Israeli defense forces, they had their guns trained on every single car. I saw this, okay? And I just talked about what I saw. And people said, that's not true. What's also, but I guess what's troubling to me is that I, is it me that maybe my, my method of, of telling the story is off 
because I want these governments to respond just like you, Deanna, have been doing for years. And just like you, Sharif, what the hell am I doing wrong? Um, and, and, and not conveying the message. And I apologize for this language. What the Israeli government is doing to these Palestinians is fucked up. People know. People understand. I think there's a difference when we talk about governments and how they act and a public awareness. And I really think there's been a real shift in this country over the last two decades that is perceptible, for sure. The way you... Uh, for example, you, you went to Palestine with Matt Doss, who is a Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor. Um, having someone like that in the Democratic Party would have been kind of unthinkable two decades ago. Um, you have uh, uh, people in Congress uh, who are speaking out quite forcefully. So, but, but even more so, you have a generation now that through constant exposure to all of these things that you're talking about are aware you have a publication like Jewish Currents, a fantastic publication that's really covering what's happening. You have a generation of young Jewish Americans who are aware of what's, that this does not reflect uh, their values and that it needs to end. So I think that there has been a shift. Um, but I think there's also a way that these governments further entrench these policies. We've seen right-wing shifts across the world uh, that have happened and kind of resisting um, you know, these public calls for this system, this 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 apartheid system, this ethnocracy, whatever we want to call it, uh, to change. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I've been going to Palestine on and off for the past kind of 12 years. And every time you go, you see the architecture of occupation, the architecture of, of apartheid manifest on the ground in new ways. So the main checkpoint between the West Bank and Jerusalem is called Kalandia. That used to be just, a, you know, this, this kind of few roadblocks um, and now it's essentially this sprawling border complex. Uh, you see the wall and how it's torn through communities. You see new military watchtowers. You see surveillance cameras. Um, you see new roads for settlers only, new permanent checkpoints, and, and always the settlements growing and expanding. And you see Gaza being bombed repeatedly, neighborhoods being razed. So, um, you know, we need to do much more. And I, I would just add this, this final point, because I think, especially people in this country, we have to think... We can't think of Palestine as some distant and unique injustice. We, it has to be tied into all of our struggles because it really is kind of a battleground that is at the center of a global struggle between the forces of control and those of liberation. And it has these ramifications that are global. So we can kind of think, think of Palestine as the laboratory of the future. All of these checkpoints, the sieges, the psyops, the algorithms, the architecture, all of these are commodities that are sold to future repressions. Israel exports all of these, all of the spyware to around the world. And this is the future that awaits all of us unless we fight back. So people need to tie these struggles together. And as Israel exports all of these forces of control, we can also look and see what does Palestine export. And Palestine has been resisting this. Palestine still exists despite the 75 years of occupation and attempts to erase it. And we, as people who work in social movements, uh, as journalists who care about justice, we can learn from, from that struggle as well. Deanna, I'll let you have the last word. She, Shireen, uh, was a friend of yours. Tell us how the world, people like us who care, our listeners, should honor, should honor her passing, her, 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 tragi her tragic killing. How should we honor her? The best way to honor her is to demand for accountability and to demand for change. 
By accountability, I mean that this isn't just a question of the one soldier who shot her. There's a whole system there that killed her. There's a whole system that murdered her. And they didn't just do it once. As I said, they did it repeated times by first blaming her, deflecting, then in a sort of, oh, oops, sorry, maybe. There's a whole system of individuals who need to be held to account. And in the United States, that accountability also means holding the U.S. government to account. The U.S. is not just Israel's funder. Uh, they're not just Israel's enabler. They, they fund Israel. They support Israel. They, they are the ones who punish anybody who tries to go and to hold Israel accountable, including whether we try an international criminal court or in other international forum. The U.S. is there. Uh, they are, the U.S. has used its, its veto in the United Nations Security Council more times with regard to Israel than any other subject. And, and so the, the level of, um, of, of enabling, of protection, of, of, uh, of punishment that is meted out to us, that also has to be, has to be held to account. And there, there can and there, there must and there can be change. And there can be change by us, as Sharif said, focusing on, on what, um, making these connections between what Israel is about and what it is that it is exporting. And we can do that. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think um, how we should remember Shireen and, and to honor her legacy is to remember the, the depth of her reporting and how it is that she, how it is that she gave Palestinians a voice to be able to speak on our own. You know, as a, as a Palestinian who's, who's been on many, um, many TV stations and the mainstream media, I feel as though it's never, uh, we're never there um, to, to, for knowledge, but we're there to be interrogated. And, and one thing that, um, that Shireen did brilliantly was she gave Palestinians the microphone and I wish other people would learn from her. Um, I wish that, that they would honor her legacy in, in that way as well. Uh, one last thing about the feedback um, that you get, and I'm going to use the same term that you use, the feedback. A few things, actually. First is, um, is that that feedback comes, Terrell, because they don't want you to report on it anymore. They want you to feel intimidated so that, you're, so that you won't report on Palestine, so you don't talk about it anymore. That's one of the tools that they've always used. Is it's, an, it's a mechanism to shut it down, shut down any discussion. It's a mechanism to silence. And you're stronger than that. And other people are stronger than that. And I encourage people to see past that because that's all that it is. It's an attempt to try to shut down the voices. And, and we have to be stronger than all of these bots and all of these um, paid, uh, paid trolls that are out there that really want to make us uh, as we would say in Arabic, um, make our eyes lie, like not believe what you even see. And once you see Terrell, once you see, you cannot unsee. You cannot unsee what you saw in Hebron. You cannot unsee it. And that's what they're trying to do to you. So they're trying to make you unsee it so that you, you doubt yourself. Um, but they won't be successful. No, and Deanna, I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to unsee what I saw. I'm actually going to go back again so I can see more. And to your advice, 
my mission will be to give the Palestinians the microphone. So you gave me my marching orders and I'm going to do it. And I'll see, and if you're there, I'll see you. And Sharif, if we happen to be, we're in, we're in New York, we're in New York City, bro. Like, you know, we can see each other here, but um, I, I'm, I'm, this is a passion of mine because I really care about humanity and justice for everybody. Everybody's freedom. The message for this show and Black Diplomats is that one group of people can't be free while other group of people are, are oppressed. I don't care if it's in Eastern Europe with the Ukrainians. I don't care if it's with Palestinians. I want everybody's freedom. I want everybody to feel the totality of their humanity. And that means calling every oppressive state out, including America, which I have no problem doing. Uh, I, 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 and so I'm definitely going to take that advice uh, to heart. I just want to thank you both for taking time to come on the show. It's been an honor and a privilege. And I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Diplomats Podcast. Please give us a five-star rating on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to us. And also support our work financially on Cash App at Cash sign at Black Diplomats, um, Venmo at Black Diplomats, or on PayPal at payme.me slash Black Diplomats. And the music you heard at the top of the show and is playing right now is by Ink Prod. The name of the song is called Dreams. Thanks again for listening. And talk to you next week. Like